Well, we are going to press into week two of our study on the or the means by which God has given us his word. Uh, we are trying to <laughs> maybe unlearn some things and learn some facets not only of uh, some of the process of the Bible being passed on, but also um, the content and our view of Scripture that maybe uh, historically in a lot of our um, circles within the last at least a couple hundred years has been pretty narrow. And so we're not trying to undermine the Scriptures. That is certainly not my intention at all in this study, but actually to strengthen our position that God has truly preserved His Word And perhaps it is not preserved in just one text um, that is held by one body of people, but rather um, within the breadth of Christianity and even into Judaism. So we're going to go into the Old Testament, and we talked about the process and where inspiration is last week. And that was the, the theological side, where do we see divine inspiration? Um, are copiers and translators and interpreters inspired? And we decided that, that really wasn't the case, and that is not necessitated for us to have a confidence in the Bible. We don't need to have it re-inspired and re-inspired and re-inspired each step. And so when we talk about inspiration, we are really talking about the product of the writers um, of the original scriptures. And that may say, well, we don't have any of those, and so how do we have confidence? And that's really tied up in this process of what we call preservation of God's word, uh, which is not just faithful copying. Sometimes preservation of God's word is, is memorization. Sometimes preservation of God's word is accurate oral communication of it. Sometimes preservation of God's word is very practical, just hiding the thing, because people are trying to destroy it. And we're going to see that today as we look at some of the history before Christ of the Old Testament. And uh, we're really going to look at the later history, not the earliest history, because that's going to bring us into understanding where we're getting uh, our Old Testament and the variation that is out there for certainly much of the variation, not all of it, but much of the variation that we find um, in the Bibles available today are in the Old Testament in terms of how many books are there in the Bible. We're going to talk about what makes a book scripture and versus not scripture. Uh, maybe I should have done it a little earlier, but I'm choosing to do it a little bit later on. And so um, we want to address tonight, though, um, the, the history first, of where we got our Old Testament. And uh, again, like I said last week, I'm going to try each week to take an example of variations and apply them. And hopefully I didn't disturb anyone too much last week with that variation by adding 600 years to your timeline of your Bible, um, by adding 100 years to six generations in the book of Genesis. Um, So hopefully that didn't disturb any of you too much that were here. Okay, but uh, we're going to do that each week. And in fact, next week we're going to have a almost most of the period we're going to be dealing with that, as well as trying to practice the process of copying. So we're going to try to set that up next week as a practicum 
to just try to put it to use and see what happens. And, um, and we're going to find out how variance has happened in our Bibles. Now, when we come to Scripture, the two words that are most disconcerting to us is if there is an omission or if there is an addition. Why is that so disconcerting to us? If there is an omission or if there is an addition. Yeah, it's changed. And we have some scripture that says don't add or subtract from this. If anyone adds or subtracts, let them be anathema, things like that. Um, and we recognize the, the need for the plenary inspiration. That is, every part of Scripture needs to be inspired. And so we would think, well, every word needs to be um, preserved. And if it's not, if someone's added to it or detracted from it, um, then it ceases to be inspired. But, it, but again, the writing itself is inspired. Copies, um, as they are derived from them, can also and should also be considered inspired. Um, is there a possibility of scribal error or purposeful omissions and, and additions? Yes. Because you're dealing with people who have their own agendas, sometimes their own theologies, and we're going to see that with regard to the Old Testament, specifically your Old Testament, um, in your King James, New King James um, tradition. So let's go in and get a little bit of the history, and these are dates and people and, and events, and maybe that's not your thing, but I think they're, they're necessary for us to really get a good handle on, on why this discussion is still raging in the church um, after a couple thousand years, and in fact, maybe is even growing within our church. So we obviously recognize that the original Old Testament was written by and large in Hebrew, not entirely. There are some parts that are Aramaic, um, particularly in Daniel and places like that. And so, um, but by and large, we can say the original documents were in Hebrew. And remember that they began as oral, and we use the word oral traditions, but we're really saying that they are orally communicated generation to generation until they are penned. And, of course, we attribute to Moses the Pentateuch. Was Moses alive at creation? Was he alive during the time of Noah and before the flood? No. Um, so all of that was given to him. And certainly we talked about inspiration last week by divine verbal inspiration. We have that information. But in addition to that, we know that there was this passing down from generation to generation orally. But we have the original documents. Now... We use this word original, and I need to qualify it a little bit, because um, there's a little bit of salesmanship here, and a little that's a little dishonest, only because um, it makes you think something that isn't true, but they really aren't saying it. And so in your Bibles, they'll often say, well, this is translated from the original Greek and the original Hebrew. Um, and what people think that means is that it was the original documents that were translated. What it's not, it was the language, the original Hebrew language, um, because there are no originals. We, we don't, they, they are dust at this point. Um, they, they are, the preservation of uh, those documents was done by copying them, um, not by putting them in airtight and sealed containers and, and carefully... Uh, 
handed down to us, and even then, if you had opened them up, some of those documents would just dissolve if you touched them. Um, and uh, even in the best of circumstances, for example, in Qumran, um, we think, well, there's lots of these scrolls out there. Well, there aren't. What they found was a lot of dust. So when you hear about a fragment, we're talking about pieces like this that they're reading one or two words off of. Is There's really only one intact scroll, and that was Isaiah. And so when you think, oh, preservation means that, well, no, it wasn't that they, they honored this so highly that they never unfolded it. No, they copied it. That's how they preserved it, and to make a new copy. So the original was, in, was largely in Hebrew, the Old Testament, and is passed down. But we know, because we have a good handle, I hope, on our Old Testament history, that uh, this was not a secure thing either, even within the, the people of Israel. Um, we are studying Jeremiah, and we talked about the whole event of Josiah and that people had lost track of the Torah, the, the Pentateuch, the, the law. They had lost the law. And they found a copy in the temple, and everyone gets excited. And, well, let's read it. Well, why aren't we doing any of those things? And so even within the nation that is built upon this document, you would think, well, oh, there's got to be copies everywhere, and they have to be preserved because they're so precious and important. And, yes, they are precious and important, but um, it is not difficult for just a couple of generations for a lot to happen because they didn't have photocopying. Okay? They did not have any of the technology we have. Um, they didn't have printing presses. This was all handwork um, of, a, of often a very few people involved. But God's word was preserved and it's found here and there. And that's not the only time. Um, in fact, one of the periods of time that are real important to our study is the period uh, that is covered in the Maccabean in the Maccabees, and if you haven't read 1st, 2nd, 3rd, and 4th Maccabees, that's in the Greek Orthodox Bible, I think in the Catholic Bible it's 1st and 2nd Maccabees only, um, you probably should read those, because they talk about why, we have, why they celebrate Hanukkah, uh, and the purification of the temple after Antiochus Epiphanes set up the abomination of desolation that was prophesied by Daniel. We have that in Daniel, um, and so it tells the whole history of uh, the Maccabean revolt and uh, the cleansing of the temple, the second revolt. And so during that time, though, there was an active attack on the Hebrew scriptures. Um, that Antiochus uh, was actively uh, hunting down copies of the Hebrew Bible and destroying them. And anyone caught with them was put to death. And so the history of our Bible isn't, we often talk about it's, it, the, the blood that's been required to bring you your copy of the Bible. We often think about that in the Reformers and, and Wycliffe and those kind of guys. And certainly that is true. Um, but there was blood shed way back before the time of Christ even to preserve God's word that people said, well, it's so important I need to hide this copy even though it cost me my life. And every copy they found, they destroyed because they were trying to eradicate Jewish practices from the land. That was during the Greek period. 
and uh, not during Alexander. We're going to talk about that shortly. So, so there have been times when the Hebrew copies became very sparse. And that's always the danger. And so um, we think, well, there's going to be all these copies, so we're going to have a proliferation of lots and lots and lots of choices. And out of the volume of copies, we have an a, a authentication mechanism. That is, I can compare all the copies if I ever got them all together in one place, and we can see if there's been any omissions, deletions, and things like that. And this is a process that is going to be used, but going to be used much later. It's not really used back in here. And so we find that these copies were made, were distributed, um, usually in the priestly realm. Um, And that's why when you get the time of Christ, what is it? It's the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the scribes, teachers of the law. They were the main element within Jewish community that was preserving these and trying to copy them and, and maintain them. So along comes a guy named Alex. So here's the Hebrew Bible, and it's and even among the Hebrew people, it has had some <laughs> times of of uh, assault upon it, and it is brought down. And a guy comes along, and his name is Alexander the Great. And why is that so important? Well, because he conquers Jerusalem, but he doesn't really conquer. They just acknowledge him as the emperor because they have read the Bible and it prophesied that he would come and they greet him in Jerusalem as the emperor. They just let him in. They, they parade. They, they set up a parade before he even arrives. There is no battle. There is no warfare. They simply let him walk in. And uh, Alexander, as you know, I've told you this before, had a vision that when he comes to the city that is all dressed in white and receives him openly that he's supposed to worship their god. And many Jews join Alexander's army and are pretty influential in, the, in this portion of the Greek Empire. Well, Alexander, of course, dies, but the Jews, under his reign, have dispersed throughout the Greek Empire. So the Greek Empire now has many Hebrew people in places of authority and trust um, and we have them really spanning almost the whole Greek world. And that stretches from India to all through Europe and down into Africa. So we're talking a big place. And so with the Hebrew people that involved in the Greek Empire, when Alexander dies, of course, the empire is divided into fours. He had four generals. He had no heir. And so the four generals, he had before he died, he had designated them to each have what regions. And uh, one of those is, well, two of them are pretty important. The two are, are the Ptolemies and the Seleucids. And so we're going to look because one of those generals is given Africa. And uh, that's the Ptolemies. Ptolemy I has taken really what is Egypt and the region there. And, of course, between the, the Ptolemies and the Seleucids, you have Israel, kind of sandwiched between them, and Israel becomes a battleground between the north and the south. And so sometimes it's Egypt pressing up, sometimes it's Syria coming down. 
Um, and so you have Antiochus coming in, you have the Ptolemies, and they're just, and it seems like the battleground of one, whether one is superior over the other one is the Holy Land. And so um, around, uh, uh, I'm just going to give general, these aren't exact dates. We, around 250, this is before Christ, around 250, Ptolemy's son, we believe it is Ptolemy II, um, under some influence uh, within his court, we believe, um, sends to Jerusalem. And he talks to the high priest of Jerusalem and asks that they send him a copy of the Hebrew Bible. Please send a copy. And that's not good enough because he doesn't know Hebrew. <laughs> so he says, please send with you, with them, uh, men qualified to translate this into Greek for me. Now, yes, he's in Egypt, but he's a Greek man in control of this, the Ptolemy empires. So, the high priest sends a copy of the Hebrew Bible, uh, particularly the Pentateuch, uh, which is the first five books, the law, and uh, with them he sends... 72 interpreters, two from each tribe. No, that's not right, because that would be 24. How many? Six from each tribe? Is that what it is? 72. So six from each tribe. So he sends 72, this is the tradition, 72 interpreters that knew both Hebrew and Greek. And Ptolemy II receives them in Alexandria and sets them up and... and uh, this forms a Old Testament. They have a Hebrew Bible. So one of these copies comes down and is taken by this and it produces a Greek Old Testament that we designate by LXX, which, and they just call it the 70. Um, that's all it means, 70, right? You recognize... He, Roman numerals, but uh, it's called the 70. And that's all they called this book. They called it the 70. And when you read letters of 1st century and 2nd century and 3rd century authors, they refer to the 70. That was they called this. Uh, we call it today the Septuagint, um, the Latin of that. Uh, septa is seven, uh, 70. And so the Septuagint, the product of the 70. And so we have this Greek translation of the Old Testament Hebrew. Now, this, interestingly enough, is very well preserved. Why? Well, they made a lot of copies of it, and Greek was the language spoken almost everywhere, and they proliferated it. Now, this wasn't the only Greek translation. There were several others we're going to talk about very briefly. I'm just going to mention them, but I'm not going to really discuss them. But the Septuagint carried with it a, a fervor within the, both among the Jews for a couple of hundred years and then among the church for several hundred years that is really comparable uh, to those that say, well, you know, those King James guys were re-inspired. Well, many of the early church fathers wrote that the Septuagint itself was an inspired version. And there's some tradition about how they did it and how fast and how 
Each of the, they were paired up into, into two, into pairs. Each were given passages, and then they compared all those passages of, of 36, 36 translations, and they were exact to each other. And so there's all this tradition to make this uh, prized among the people of God. And this was sent back into Jerusalem, and it is largely the Septuagint that um, we have um, best preserved of the Hebrew. So, yes? The original Greek. Not, well, not Koine, this is not Koine Greek. No, this is High Greek. This is not common Greek. And so that if you read your New Testament and Old Testament, those are two very different Greeks. Um, one is marketplace Greek, what you would speak out uh, slang and all the stuff you'd speak out on the streets, conversation. Um, and then there's high Greek. And so this is written in high Greek. These were very educated people. And it was really written only for educated people. Um, and it's not for the commoner. They, they would have struggled with some of this um, linguistically, they would have struggled with a little bit. They would have understood a word here and there, um, but this is, in written form, this is the high Greek, so not koine, not the, not the marketplace Greek at all. And so you have this being proliferated, and so by the time Christ comes along the, on the scene, by the time we get to the, to the cross, to the, to the beginning of the church, um, when you'd hear the word Hellenists, and of course Stephen was the one that went to the Hellenist thing, this would have been the scriptures that they used. And this is also the scriptures that is often quoted out of in the New Testament. You'll notice times in the New Testament where it doesn't quite match up to your Old Testament. You go, well, they took a lot of liberty with that. Well, what they are quoting is the Koine Greek of the High Greek Septuagint. And so um, it's not exact to the Septuagint, but it's closer to the Septuagint than what you have in yours. And and again, we don't struggle with a lot of it, uh, the variations. I know as a child I was like, Oh, they misquoted the Old Testament. How could Paul misquote the Old Testament? Well, he didn't misquote the Old Testament. He quoted for his people the Old Testament in Koine Greek out of... Now, for Paul, he had both access to Hebrew and the Greek and uh, certainly would have had both available to him. So this is, in terms of oldest and, and most durable, this is the translation that has come down from some Greek back up in here that was pretty old. Um, this is 250 years before Christ. Now you might say, well, wasn't, didn't the Hebrew Bible get preserved? Well, yes, it did. Other copies did come down through time. We had other copies coming down, filtering through. Um, even some were cut off um, because of either the people of Israel and their sin or their enemies and the destruction that happened. But we have those coming down. Um, but what happened was the Septuagint became so valuable that these became rarer and rarer. And while you have a group of people, the, the Essenes copying frantically, trying to preserve this in Quran, Qumran, you have um, these becoming uh, really only available to some in the priestly class. But the Septuagint is being copied all over the place. And so we don't have any of these readily available to us. 
We have none of them. Nothing pre-Christ of any Hebrew Bible. The oldest Old Testament we really have is the Septuagint. It was almost preserved more uh, aggressively than the Hebrew was. And there were some discussion here so uh, about whether it was reliable or not. Now, your Bible, your Old Testament, is not based on the Septuagint. It is based upon another text we're going to talk about here very quickly. Um, and so this is our uh, one traditions, uh, church tradition that's extant today, goes back and makes this claim. So by the time you get to the early church fathers, um, and uh, if I listed off some of their names, you would hopefully recognize them, they are quoting almost exclusively from this text. So when we read um, Jerome and we read some of these early church fathers um, in the first century, second century, third century of the church, and they're quoting out of the Old Testament, we find them quoting this as the scriptures. And so that is their their idea of what the Old Testament was. Now, by the way, Ptolemy the second. Um, it is certain that at 250, the Septuagint was translated in one sitting by these 70. Um, but they didn't translate all of the Old Testament. It really took almost 200 years for that to be completed into Greek. Um, and so the idea that it was all done in one year um, just isn't true. Um, it extended for a couple of hundred years before each of the books that you recognize as an Old Testament book was translated. And one of the most difficult books believe it or not, out of this whole list. One of the strongest where there's a lot of variation is the book of Jeremiah. To the point that some people didn't want it in the canon of what is the scriptures. They, they didn't want to include it. And so you, you have some of those issues going on. So we have some different camps. Now, let me just share with you, let's help us understand this. Why would one family uh, or stream of translations be different than another stream of translations? Well, let's take, um, let's just, since we know a little bit about Jesus' day, let's take the Pharisees and let's just assign them a stream. Now, let's assign a stream to the Sadducees. We know they were two distinct groups that were within the hierarchy of Israel. Um, what would their copyists differ on? We know the resurrection, right? We know that, that one didn't believe in an afterlife. There was no resurrection. There isn't anything when you die, you die. So that idea is there. And so you could imagine that their scribes would have a certain leaning. And these scribes would have another leaning. And many believe that the reason the Qumran scrolls existed is because they saw what was going on, that people were perverting some of it, and so they wanted to step away from all of that and give genuine copies. That they were just, I mean, these guys were copyaholics. I mean, they just insistent on it. But again, we have fragments, little, I mean, some some of the vet, the jugs that they were found in were, honest to goodness, just dust. That's all they were. So you're not talking about anything necessarily readable by and large. And so um, you can see how they could affect those, and that's true to this day. 
Um, and in some of our modern translations, you can see the leanings of the translators, that whether they are leaning in this direction, that direction. Um, and if you want to doubt that, pick up a New World translation. Whose translation is that? Whose translation is it? The Jehovah's Witnesses. They used to be a King James only group. Did you know that? I grew up, they were King James only. Um, and they, that wasn't enough for them, and so they produced their own translation called the New World Translation. And what did they do with passages referring to Christ as deity? Oh, yeah, they did severe damage to it. Um, but they were translated out of the original Greek and Hebrew, just like your Bible. But they had their disposition towards it. So um, one of the questions about the Alexis is how did the Jews view it? Well, the Jews viewed it before the time of Christ very highly. They considered it, with a couple of exceptions, they really didn't like the fact that the Septuagint, when God created the firmament, added the phrase, and God saw that it was good. That phrase isn't in your Bible. Uh, the Jews didn't like it. Um, and a guy later on, we need to, you maybe have heard about, a guy named Origen, after the time of Christ, one of the early church fathers, Oh, um, let's see, what would he be, about two-something? Two um, he wrote something called the Hexapla. You're learning all of your Greek words for numbers. What's a Hexapla? Octa. Hex, six. So, he wrote a six-columned reference manual. It took him 28 years to compile it. He had six columns, and uh, here's what was in those six columns. I got it written down here somewhere, I think. Maybe not. The first column, he had each, each Hebrew word in the Hebrew Bible that was available to him. It was one of these that was passed down, available to him. And he wrote each one, each word, and this is no vowels. This is the old, old Hebrew. And so um, I'm just going to write one on here that you know because of our familiarity, the Tetragrammaton, the YHWH, the name of God given, um, that we have translated for us Lord or Jehovah. And so um, he would write that down. The next thing he would do is he would transliterate it into... Greek. That means letter for letter. And so you take the Greek letter, I'm sorry, the Hebrew letter, make it a Greek letter so that the Greek people knew what this word was. All right? And then in the third column, he gave one of the translations that was available in Greek of the Hebrew. Um, In the fourth column, he gave another one. And then the famous fifth column, he gave the Septuagint. But he didn't, and he called it the original Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. And then in the last column, he gave another uh, translation that was extant in his day. So he had six columns, and it was the famous fifth column. Now, <laughs> it uh, took up 6,000 leafs to do these six columns. That means it made 12,000 pages. So guess how many copies of that we have? Nobody copies a 12,000-page book. 
when you have to do it by hand. Nobody does that. <laughs> and so we don't have any copies of it. We have some fragments, but we have all these letters written to him and to each other, all referencing his hexapla. This was considered the monumental work of translation in history to date. And the guy puts this forward at 12,000 pages. Sometimes a page would be taken for one Hebrew word. Because not only did he give you what the Septuagint meant, he also gave his um, notes on what he, how the people felt about it and, and uh, some views on that and some concerns over some aspects of it, of was there a better Greek word to be used, and then he compared it to the other three Greek translations that were available in their day. And so comparatively speaking, this is a huge work, but again, we have just a few fragments of it where we have like three or four columns, and we have like this little piece, this big, of a 12,000-page book. And so this is considered a mammoth work, but what we find is the early church fathers keep referencing the fifth column. What is the fifth column? The fifth column is the Septuagint that Origen gives us. And they feel that this is God's word. This is the truth. Now, why is this all important? Well, as I said, none of this was the basis of your Old Testament in your Bible. So all this is the first few centuries of the church. And by the way, um, <laughs> the Jews used the Septuagint up until the church started using it. And then they abandoned it. As a people, when the church became more, more the more reliant the church came on the Septuagint in the first 300 years, the less and less it was used in the Hebrew community. To the point that because of 70 AD and the destruction of Jerusalem and the dispersion of Israel, there were very, very few Hebrew copies of the scriptures. Very few. Because the Septuagint has transplanted it. They had almost taken it over. Now most everyone quote out of the Septuagint. So that's the first 300 years before Christ and the 300 years after Christ of what was going on with your Old Testament. And it maintained that for many years. And then the, the Jewish people said, this is a mess. We do not have sufficient, reliable manuscripts, and we refuse to go back to the Septuagint. We refuse to do that. It's a pride issue, and we all have those. We all have a little ethnocentrism in us. And so they started another Hebrew translation, or Hebrew copying process, and this is uh, started about 750, that's, uh, that is a really bad, there, 750 A.D. And this is going to go on for about 250 years, and yes, it takes that long. 250 years, remember, it's all handwork, there's no computers, there's no, and so for 250 years, there's a family, one specific family within Juda- Judaism and uh, the Masoretes, and they create the Masoretic text. And in your Bible, in your center column, sometimes it will say MT, 
and, and capital T, and sometimes they'll say the LXX, MT. What is MT? It's the Masoretic Text. So the Jews didn't want to use the Septuagint. They, they had a struggle finding copies of Hebrew, and so the Masoretes started to compile things and to produce a new, uh, not a version, it, it, but a, a new Old Testament. <laughs> they were going to rewrite the Old Testament, not by re-inspiration, but by very, very, very methodical and careful counting. And that's what the Masoretes were known for, is counting. They counted every letter. And so every copy was was given a number, how many letters. And so they had four layers of people in the process. They had the, the copier, then you had the watcher, then you had the counter, and then you had the guy who could speak it, read it out loud. All to ensure that it was carefully preserved. The problem is, is that they didn't want to use this. And this whole oldest line of the Hebrew they didn't want to do. So they were compiling things that had trickled down through them from these other sources. But again, we have several times in history where that was jeopardized. And so the Masoretes were there, and it wasn't very long before people started to be concerned about something. That the Masoretes had a bias. What was their bias? Numbers, yeah, they hated the numbers. Their bias was against Christ, Christianity. And many of the complaints very early on coming out of this, and it was really way back here, even in some of the Greek translations that weren't the Septuagint, was because the Jews tried to do that. They tried to say, well, the, church, the Christians are using the, the Septuagint, so we're going to create our own Greek translation. And the complaint very early in the church was they're destroying the messianic prophecies of the Old Testament. They're doing damage to them. And these people shared that same idea. And so the Masoretes started putting together a Hebrew text. And they added vowels. This is where vowels came in. So now you have a written language that doesn't depend upon someone reading to you for you to know what those words say. And here's where your vowels were introduced. And this is the foundation of your Old Testament, our Old Testament in the modern Protestant movement. We use the Masoretic text, and so did the Catholic community, by and large, use the Masoretic as the basis of their Old Testament. And there was only one group that maintained the Septuagint, and that would be the Orthodox Church. Um, not just the Greek Orthodox, the Russian, Armenian, uh, Syrian, uh, there are lots of Orthodox. A lot of the Eastern churches east of Rome were the Orthodox. And so they maintain the Septuagint. So why do we have conflict Well, and struggle? Why am I going to be bringing out some things out of here? Um, because there's value here. In the preservation process, translation, a Greek translation had a, had a foundation of older manuscripts than what these people had available to them. And the proliferation allows us to compare. And we have a lot more of these. And these guys were consolidating this into one. And so the 
that those 600 years, the Masoretic text lost them. Somewhere in these, what do we got? 1,000 to 1,250 years difference? Some of those numbers were dropped. It happens. Sometimes on purpose, sometimes accidentally. Um, And so uh, there are several things within the Masoretic text that doesn't agree with itself, as we're going to see next week, that it contradicts itself. And so it's like, well, but is different in the Septuagint. And so this is where we're having problems engaging uh, why are theologians um, in Harvard Divinity School, why are they attacking God's word uh, when they know Greek and Hebrew? Well, it's because of these differences. They know them. You're not aware of them because most pastors are afraid to teach you this because they're afraid you're going to not trust your Bible what we need to trust is the, the entire process of God's preservation, not just one stream of preservation. But the entirety gives us a strong confidence, and then we end up with a better text. What we really should do is get this group of people together with this group of people and come up with another one. That would be superior, and we work those out. But again, you've got now we have money issues because there's money to be made by having so-and-so's study Bible and so, search and search, such and such translation. So this is the Masoretic, and you're going to hear me talk about the Masoretic text says this, the Septuagint says this, and that's going to come out tonight. So i got five minutes, ten minutes, because we're doing prayer Wednesday night. So I'm going to give you an example. Okay? Difference between your Bible and a Greek Orthodox Bible. Cross town here down, uh, where are they at? Um, bridge there? Not bridge, they're... Um, Yeah, so there's a Greek Orthodox church down, down there in town. So, turn your Bibles to the book of Esther. What is your complaint? What is the complaint about the book of Esther? Anybody know? No mention of God. That is correct. If the only text you have is the Masoretic, and you have what is called an omission, or this one has an addition, we have to decide. Because there are three passages in the Septuagint Esther that isn't in your Esther. And they are all about God. Two of them are the specific prayers of Esther. What did she pray to God? And the specific prayer of Mordecai. What did he pray to God? And the the pre-verses are what... Mordecai was told by God before it all started. So, I'm just going to read you, before we get to your Bible, I want to read you the first chapter in the Orthodox, Greek Orthodox Bible. In the second year of the reign of great King Artaxerxes, on the first day of Nisan, Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shammai, son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin, had a dream. Yeah, it's not in your Bible, is it? Boy, that's disconcerting, isn't it? Here we go. He was a Jewish man living in the city of Susa, a great man who served in the court of the king. He was from the captives Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had deported from Jerusalem with Jeconiah, the king of Judah, and this was his dream. Behold, there was noise and tumult, thunder and earthquake, confusion on the earth. Two great dragons came forth, both ready for combat. A great roar came forth from them, and at the sound of them, every nation prepared to wage war against the nation of the just. And indeed, it was a day of gloom and of darkness, tribulation and anguish, oppression and great confusion upon the earth. 
The entire upright nation was troubled, fearing the evils against them. They were prepared to perish, and they cried out to God. Elohim, not Jehovah. At their cry, there came forth, as it were, a small spring, a great river having abundant water. There was light, and the sun rose, and the lowly were exalted, and they devoured the esteemed. Mordecai, who had seen this vision and what God was planning to do, awoke. He kept it in his heart and wished to ponder it until night. Then Mordecai rested in the courtyard with Gabatha and Tharah, the king's two eunuchs who guarded the courtyard. He overheard their words and considered their anxieties, and he realized they were preparing to lay hands upon the king, and he informed the king about them. Then the king interrogated the two eunuchs, and they confessed and were led away to be executed. The king made a memorandum of these matters, and Mordecai also wrote about these matters. And the king commanded Mordecai to serve in the court, and he gave him gifts for this service. But Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agathite, was held in high honor before the king, and he sought for ways to bring harm to Mordecai and his people because of the two eunuchs of the king. It came to pass after these matters in the days of Artaxerxes, is the same Artaxerxes, and that's where it joins yours, right? The days when King Artaxerxes sat on the throne of the city of Susa, a little bit different English translation, but that's where we join your version of the book of Esther. And so their contention is that this is, should be part of our scriptures. Then they insert, as you go through to um, the chapter 5 in your Bible, um, before chapter 5 it would be, I guess, in our Bible, I keep saying your Bible, <laughs> in, in, in the Bible we use, Book of Esther, um, we simply have Esther telling Mordecai, have everybody fast, correct? Um, chapter 4, verse 16, go gather all the Jews who are present in Susha and fast for me, neither eat nor drink for three days of fast and uh, night or day. My maids and I will fast likewise, and I'll go to the king, which is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. And so that's where we left off. And in the Septuagint, that uh, is just the first part. And now we have the prayer of more after Mordecai went and did whatever, verse 17, Mordecai went and did all that Esther commanded him. And then in the Septuagint, there's a 17a. <laughs> and B, and C, and D, and E, and F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P. They have a whole bunch of verses that we don't have. The first handful of verses, A through I, is the prayer of Mordecai. What does he pray to God? He beseeched the Lord, remembering all the works of the Lord, and said, O Lord, Lord, Almighty King, all things are under your power, and there is no one to oppose you in your desire to save Israel. For you have made heaven and the earth and every wondrous thing under heaven. And you are the Lord of all and there is no one who can resist you, Lord. You know all things. You know, O Lord, that it is not out of disrespect or arrogance or love of honor that I did this to refuse to bow down to the haughty Haman. For I would have been happy to kiss the soles of his feet for the salvation of Israel. For I did this in order that I not place the glory of man above the glory of God. I will not bow down to anyone but you, O my Lord. And I will not do thing, these things out of arrogance. And now, O Lord, God, King... God of Abraham, save your people. Now he's using all those names of God. Jehovah, Elohim, King, all of those. Save your people, for they look upon us for our destruction and they desire to destroy your inheritance from the beginning. Do not disregard your portion which you redeemed for yourself out of the land of Egypt. Hear my prayer and be merciful to your inheritance. 
Turn our mourning into feasting so we may live and hymn your name. O Lord, do not destroy the mouth of those who praise you. That all Israel cried out with all their might, for their death was before their eyes. And the next portion is the prayer of Esther, which is very similar um, to it and um, a little quite lengthier. And so we have this context that we are ignorant of. And here's the one statement that I've been taught since Bible college and seminary is the concern that Esther never names the name of God. But that's true only of the traditions coming out of the Masoretic text. And the Orthodox don't have that issue because their text coming out of the Septuagint has all of this. We say, well, how can lengthy passages like that go missing? Uh, and again, some of this is the work. Don't think that, the, that remember, it was 250 years. That's more than one person's lifespan. And so a, a lot of people are involved in this. And all it takes is for someone to miss, to skip, to um, uh, not in this process, but in this process of getting it to them. They have doubts, but also... And this is real important, right? Dogs, Dogs. yeah, to chew them up. Um, also in this process, there are a lot of abbreviated Bibles. Why would there be abbreviated Bibles? Easy of carrying it. Come on, what else? Price, what? Because it's sort of a copy. I don't have time. I'm going to copy my favorite portions, or I'm going to get the gist of it. I want to get the, the gist of it, and, and I don't have enough room on my papyrus for all these prayers. You see how simple and practical some of these issues can be? It can be simply someone back here who is under threat of life, preserving as much as he can write overnight. It can be that simple. It can be as simple as just someone copying it down. Um, you do it all the time. You guys do it all the time. How many of you sit down when you want to quote a verse, quote the whole book? Come on. How many of you quote the whole chapter? How many times do you write out a chapter of the Bible when you want to tell them um, all have sinned? Do you read to them the whole chapter of Romans 3? No, you give them one verse. So it's still a practice today. Um, And so on your Facebook, you don't put whole chapters, you don't put whole books, you put Verses, and sometimes verses aren't even a whole sentence. And so in the context of where these all came from, we can see how it is possible. And once one person does it, what happens? In this stream, what happens if this person right here, for whatever reasons, necessitated that they abbreviate the book? All the copies from that, that stream out of that also have the abbreviation. It's that simple. Equally, (laughs) someone could have added here, correct? But the likelihood of additions is harder to explain and harder to implement than deletions. Why would you add this kind of text? I mean, you're having to write this out and what is, and so 
we know that the Septuagint is based on an older Greek manuscript than these people had available to them. They didn't have available to them what these people had available. They had more, a thousand years of more copying. And somewhere in that stream, there's a possibility that the prayers of Mordecai and the prayers of Eth- and the prayer of Esther, for whatever reason, was redacted by choice or by simply necessity and not having any necessarily evil intent in it. And so when we look at, do I have confidence in my scriptures? Yes, but I have confidence in the entirety of the body of work, and so then we can compare and contrast and really evaluate. Now, does that prayer change what happened in Esther? Did the prayers change what happened in Esther? No. There's, the reason I included that example is for one very important reason. There's been assault on the book of Esther by the Protestant community because it never names the name of God. For that reason alone, they have questioned whether it even belongs in your Bible. I've had people challenge me on that basis in our modern era. And so here's a book in your Bible that's very precious that we understand why the Feast of Purim exists of the history of Israel and Christians in the church age challenge it as being not worthy of being in your Bibles because there's no name of God. But then when we go back into the Septuagint, we go, well, no wonder they put it in their Bibles. God is there in the first two paragraphs and in the midst of the deepest trial, we have these two people with Mordecai's prayer is a little shorter, and, but Esther's extended prayer, you have the prayers of these two godly individuals. They're not saying go fast and just fast. They expected people to pray to Jehovah, to Elohim. His name is all over it in those prayers. And what that should affirm for us is that the Esther, book of Esther belongs here. It was there in the Septuagint. It was acknowledged by the Jewish community and it belongs in it, and if you have this attack, if you have this complaint about the book of Esther, that complaint lands right onto this group, the MT, the Masoretic text. It does not lie upon its canonicity, whether it belongs in your Bible or not. It, it's saying, somewhere along the lines, these guys got redacted versions. More likely than lengthy editions like this. Remember, Origen complained that the LXX added one phrase. Can you imagine if they added a whole dream and two prayers? How much complaint there would be? No. Those were in the text that the LXX was built off of. They were there. And the Jews didn't complain about it. They belong. And again... Oh, do I need to go out and buy a Greek Orthodox uh, Septuagint Bible? Um, Sure, you got money. Get yourself another Bible and read through it. And let it. Now, do we have to have it? No. But you can afford it, go get it and read it. Imagine your pastor telling you to go get a Bible and read it. Just for the breadth of it to say this is scripture. And yes, even things that are not in our canon of scripture 
that are in these Bibles um, are worth reading. They're called apocryphal. Not, they're not evil. They're worth reading. That's, they're just not scripture. That's what apocryphal means, worth reading. I mean, you guys read a lot of books. Well, not so many these days. Um, these are some books worth reading. Are they scripture? Probably not, but you read a lot of books that aren't scripture, don't you? So why aren't you reading these? Some of these, like the book of Judith, I was like, oh, okay. And the Susanna, the story of Susanna, I was like, oh, no, not, not a chance is that really. <laughs> Someone was, that, that's historical fiction there. Um, so, but that doesn't mean, I, I'm pretty, how many of you read fiction? All right, historical fictions, you guys like to read historical fictions? Well, read the book of Susanna and Judith, and, and even if you don't see them as scripture, see them as historical fiction, and they're interesting little stories driven off of characters and events in the Bible that you're familiar with. Um, but we are so caught up in it can only be this way that we lose the breadth and the value that's there. And I want to just challenge us a little bit on that and challenge you myself along the way. So next week we're going to redo a Sunday school lesson and uh, it's, it, we're going to take a lot of time on that and uh, then try to see how this kind of thing happens. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. Thank you again for your word and for the opportunity we have to study how it came to us. And Lord, we, um, we know that you have promised to preserve it and that it will endure. And we are arrogant to think it only endures in our tradition alone. And we do thank you for what we have and its power to transform lives it's, and the truth that, it, that is there. Um, and we stand firm there, but we also recognize that you have a fullness to this process that we are largely ignorant of. And uh, this is our own fault, really, in this age. And so we pray that we might uh, consider um, the breadth of your word and uh, its power as well in uh, the handling of our scriptures. And we pray this in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.